You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week, we have a really, really special episode. The first time ever, I've decided to bring in a fellow developer, someone who's doing some much more important and really impressive things uh, than we do at Strategic, someone I look up to from afar as well, and someone who I think a lot of you will uh, learn to look up to going forward. You'll start to notice the things they're doing. It's Adam Zorzi from Australian Development Capital. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for coming in. It really means a lot. Thanks, Trent. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the kind words. Adam, you're a fellow Trinity boy, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. A few more grey hairs than me. A couple. (laughs) Some of them are covered up though. It all started back then, I guess, uh, with regards to your story. You started just like I did on the Swan River. Yep. Through to 1993, I graduated, giving away my age, but five great years there. A lot of time on the river in a rowing shell and a fair bit of time in the class, but yeah. That name, that surname is a pretty uh, well-known surname in the building industry, especially. Yep. How did that start? Were you around building from a very young age? Did you understand it? Was it something that when you were in high Mm. school... Your teachers were saying, look, you should be an accountant, you should be a lawyer or whatever it is, but you knew that you were going to be a part of the building industry or did you learn that later on? Probably sounds a bit cliched, but I have been in the industry from before I was a teenager. You know, I, I was the eldest of the third generation. My grandfather started the building company not long after he arrived from Italy in 1950, being the eldest of the third generation and loving hanging around with my grandfather on school holidays and things whilst he was still working meant that I was often in his ute with him going out to building sites and handing him bricks while he hand built soak wells and things like that and you know I have great memories of that and I you know I love that I love those memories and it you know it was a good foundation to see how hard that generation of Australians really worked and helped myself and my brother both sort of develop a fairly strong work ethic. I worked within the business in a range of different roles through school, through uni, from doing the gardens and cleaning display homes. Bit of pocket money? Yeah, on Fridays when I was at uni, my Friday afternoon was going and cleaning our display homes and doing the gardens. On school holidays, I was in the truck with labourers and running around jobs and cleaning bricks and cleaning windows and doing floor scrapes and whatever else was needed for a bit of pocket money and then sort of graduated up through there to working in the office. And ultimately, I spent a bit of time in sales, selling new homes to clients, but then deviated off into development by the time I was in my mid-twenties. It's an early time for anyone, you know, when most people think about that, when I think about my clients and the people who are just getting in contact or listening to the podcast, the the early 20s is when those really proactive young fellows are having to think about their first subdivision, their first side-by-side development, something that they can afford. Yeah. Do you remember the first thing that you did on your own? The first development I was involved with really was a small subdivision of four or five lots in Mount Pleasant and we bought a site, myself and two other guys and carved a block up into five lots and sold those and yeah that was that was interesting and you know pretty pretty steep learning curve and there weren't the advise you know the advisory groups like yours yeah around back in the day that helped you helped you tick all the boxes and so you're on the phone with everyone from surveyors to plumbers to everyone else yeah, so you're was, your own project manager yeah yeah that's right you know learn the ropes that way on land subdivision and then from there sort of pursued more the built form stuff which is what i quite enjoy well you can take two paths really can't you you can be the nigel Satterley and create a new estate a new mm. suburb mm. 
or you can create something like the things you're creating these days that are closer into the city in that infill median density space. Why did you choose median density? Why did you choose infill mm. over the land estates? Because clearly that's where your business these days focuses yeah. on. I suppose it stems originally from having a construction background. And whilst I'm not a builder, I, I know enough about construction to be dangerous. You know, I've, I've always been passionate about great design and been passionate about innovation. And I've always looked at opportunities for infill as the real future and whilst I absolutely respect the land developers out there and they you know obviously provide us a great essential growth need for for our city what I don't think is still really being done as best it can in Perth is infill you know Mm. I think there's there's still a lot left to be desired in infill in Perth and so we're looking to raise the bar and and do it better than than a lot of the other guys out there. ADC is the the brand, Australian Development Capital. You've got a few flagship projects that people would probably know about now Mm. if you mentioned them. Mm. Uh, They're pretty ballsy, Adam. Mm. They're not the sort of apartment building you'd see uh, most developers buying a piece of land or buying a property, knocking it down and putting up 30 stories. Mm. You're taking on some serious challenges that for a lot of people, they would just go, oh, that's too risky. There's too much variability there. I don't want to get involved in the government. We're talking about being right there on Stirling Highway in Mosman Park, mm. the Perth Girls School with the old cemetery being involved, mm. and as well taking on heritage buildings. Mm. What's the play? Well, firstly, I'm not sure ballsy is something we really want to <laughs> want to be known as in as an investor. Mm. But I suppose we've all, we've always looked for the point of difference. My business partner Rod and I. It's a competitive industry. It's like all you know, like all industries. In this town, particularly, it's you know, it's competitive and it's very hard to differentiate yourself, differentiate your brand, differentiate your product, and make a dollar if you're just buying run-of-the-mill vacant blocks of land. That and anyone so can anyone can that anyone can do a solution you, for. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And you know, when we started ten years ago as well, we're both making a fresh start in a new business, and we've taken on a whole raft of different opportunities. You know, we've. We built a 100-room hotel in West Perth was one of our first projects. We've we built a self-storage facility for Storage King out in Ellenbrook. We've done office. We've done apartments. We've done all sorts of things. And that's what you do when you're starting a new business. You, you know, It's a matter of the way we would attract investors to participate with us and become our partners in our projects was to show that we were prepared to find the opportunities that were different not that we were going to be run a mill and run of the mill and we weren't just going to go and buy a vacant block of land in any old suburb and and build a run of the mill apartment building yeah we've just tried to differentiate and be different and and in doing that we've found that there are opportunities out there to provide a better return deliver a better product by digging that bit deeper and perhaps being prepared to embrace the opportunities that other people might shy away from, like you mentioned, heritage and things like that. So, Well, that, this theme mm. that I wanted to bring up mm. is really important because it not only applies at the level of development that you're undertaking, mm. it applies down at the $500,000 mark mm. as well. Generally, we get a lot of inquiry from people who call up and say, hey, I just look like to do a corner lot split. Mm. You know, I'm thinking of doing a land subdivision. Yep. The easiest thing for people to understand, generally. Yep. Yep. And the feedback I generally provide to them is... Look, because everyone understands it or think they understand it and it suits their general risk appetite, it's a very efficient market. It's very hard to demonstrate when you do the numbers properly a profitability in that project because people are generally paying a bit more to get into the site. Because of that, there's not much in it. That's right. And so what the point here is, You have to differentiate yourself, whether mm. you're in that space of $500,000 or $5 million or $50 million. If you're at that $500,000 space, the differentiation is your ability to afford something a bit more expensive or build over just a subdivision and build in areas where there is low level of 
supply, right? For you, it's about solving problems that other development businesses can't be bothered solving or don't have the skills to solve. Yeah, that's right. And in that as well, finding the opportunities that aren't out there publicly being advertised. You know, we'll buy things sometimes that are on the market, in the market and are being advertised, but more often than not, we're buying things that are off market because if typically in a market like this where it's quite hot and everybody out there wants to be a property developer, by the time it goes yeah. to market, anyone that's got a reasonable connection to the selling agent's already run a ruler over it and passed it up because it's too expensive or there's too many challenges. And so the best opportunities typically arrive off market or they're the ones that, like I said earlier, people shy away from. Mm. So, you know, heritage has been a big thing for us. Nearly every project, bar for one or two that we've done, has had a heritage aspect. People often shy away from heritage, but we like it because the bones of a heritage building provide a great fabric to start they're built well any for new starters. Development. yeah they're built well and people love to live in it people love to visit it. it it just creates a great vibe typically you know you from you know the smaller things right through to you know the the treasury buildings in the city that adrian finney did uh you know it's just amazing you know look at the look at what a great asset a legacy is now, now. It's, yeah, yeah. For, it's a legacy for asset for the state you know and it's those unfortunately as a city, we knocked down and got rid of so much of our heritage in the mm. 60s and 70s. Massive shame. And terrible shame. So the ones that are there now really, you know, should be revered and respected. And so, we, you know, we find that you get a lot more buyer appetite when you, if you're selling apartments that are part of some sort of heritage building, you get a lot more interest from tenants if you're doing some sort of, you know, retail or F&B component and it's got heritage. So, you know, they're, they're, there's definitely a lot more, a lot of demand for it. When it comes to heritage, though, mm. it's hard to know what's under the skin. And also, I would have thought mm. that where people say it's too hard or too risky is mm. their ability to do a feasibility on not only what it's going to cost to fix this thing mm. to the level that the government authority finds acceptable, mm. but also what's it worth when it's done. Mm. It's sort of like doing a reno in a really old property in Mount Lawley. You mm. know, it's, a lot of people shy away from that. You're yeah. taking it to the next level where the government's involved. Mm. Does that not scare you? It's like anything in business. You do your due diligence. Mm. You do as much homework as you can. And for us, depending on the project, that you know that involves doing prelim before you buy it, doing preliminary designs, getting heritage architects involved, getting builders involved, and getting a real understanding of what the cost is going to be. Putting some money down. You can do that, yeah. Yep. You, but you know, you put it up. You put that risk money up before you commit to locking in to buy it, not after, and try and mitigate as much of that as possible. Plus. The other thing is, you know, we've always found the Heritage Council to be very good to work with. They, as the re as the sort of custodians of heritage in Western Australia, their ultimate ga end game is to see that those buildings are somehow brought back to life and enjoyed by the people of Western Australia. So they're not standing it, in your way. No, and if that means, you know, it depends on the level of heritage and the, and the and the building, of course. But you know, ultimately, if you are using your best endeavours to bring that building back to life and, and make it publicly accessible where possible and ultimately ensure that that is retained. We've found them to be prepared to be flexible on things, you know, and they'll let you knock a wall over here if you can demonstrate that you'll show that you'll, you'll somehow leave a, a legacy of what was there or you'll do something else in return. We've found them to be commercial. We've found them to help us where necessary and work help us you know, work in with our programs. So it's not... I probably shouldn't be sharing this, but it's not as scary as some people think it is. Well, let me ask that in a more direct space. Mm. You've purchased the Perth Girls' School at yep. the top of Wellington Street. Mm. 
if anyone's been past there, they'll, they'll recognize that now it's where a lot of the Fringe Festival's yeah. being held. Yep. It's a great facility for Fringe, especially. Yeah. But not only the, the Perth Girls' School, there's obviously the massive amount of land behind that going down back down the hill, hmm. which has got some, some cemetery history. At what point do you have enough resources hmm. or information to figure out how do I deal with the risk of what might be underground? In that instance, we originally acquired the, the girls' school buildings, which you know are beautiful buildings, and you know we were very fortunate that they were they had been. Whilst it was a girls' school from the 30s through to the 50s, after that it became police traffic headquarters, and the police looked after the buildings and kept the framework there and didn't really do anything that um, bastardized that it or yeah. bastardized it. And so, what we were able to acquire there was very sound structure authentic well-maintained buildings and so that gave us a great basis to to start working with the land uh, to the north of that which you know many people remember as being a motor vehicle licensing center prior to that it was playing fields for the girls school and prior to that it was part of the original perth cemeteries the balance of the perth cemeteries is still across the other side of plain street um, that's that portion is controlled by the national trust uh, that was the original colonial cemetery for Perth. It was the second highest point of the of Perth city after Kings Park, and you always buried people at a high point, not not down not down in a low not point, not in the swamp, yep. not in the swamp. And then the cemeteries originally spread across in the the car park, and also further north. Part of that had already been remediated by uh, another by another group some years back. There's no East Perth. Sanitary remediation specialists, right? No, you don't no. call them up and say, "Hey, can I get a quote?" Well, funnily enough, there, no, there's no no, but there are forensic archaeologists. The University of Western Australia have a team that do it. They have a department that teaches it and and professors there. Prior to us buying that land, the state government had already scoped the work because they owned the land and they were the vendors of the land and they had scoped the work with the university. And so, again, before we bought the site, we went and spoke to the university and got a handle on what the scope of works was going to be, what the likely cost was going to be, and that gave us the ability to go on, you know, make, a, make an, uh, an offer to the government to buy it, pay as part of the sale process, and be prepared to take on that the risk of doing that remediation, which you know we've subsequently done and received a sign-off from the state government that it's all complete. Risk that most other developers, I assume, just weren't happy to take or would have maybe not done all the homework they needed to and way mm. overvalued what that would have cost. Yeah, yeah, and ultimately there was only... When the sale process concluded, there were only one, us and one other party that were at the table willing to buy it. That just shows who are in Perth right now does have the balls to take on those projects. And mm. that's what I mean by it. So where's it at now? What's the plan? What's going to happen at the Perth Girls' School? What are we looking forward to in the next few years? Yeah, so well, we've spent the last few years working up a master plan for the site. It's a significant land holding. There's nearly 1.8 hectares of land there and... So it's you know one of the larger pieces of privately held land in the city. Eighteen thousand square meters. Yeah, it's a lot to have in the, you know close to the city. We've done a master plan there now that's been in, endorsed by the state government. It'll involve a large scale mixed use development that'll like we're, we're still working through what the final mix will be. The form of the buildings has been approved in terms of the height and scale, and it's north of a hundred thousand square meters of building area ultimately with some varying tower sizes on both pieces of land both the northern site and the girls school site but central to that is the retention of the girls school buildings 
and the the rejuvenation and further activation of those beyond what we're already doing we're working with some really exciting food and beverage operators we'll continue to work with fringe and the idea is that that'll become a really great exciting food and beverage and arts and cultural hub for that end of the city we're also looking to put a full line supermarket in there and then on top of that would be some apartments maybe a hotel uh, a real maybe precinct some offices yeah and build a build a real mixed-use precinct there because there's a lot of people live when it's it's the largest concentration of residential population in the perth cbd because there's not much in the rest of the cbd the majority of it is east perth focused that's right to all the development on adelaide terrace and the like but they don't have a real hub and that's the problem with east perth it's really mm. a daft on the whole of the CBD, if you look at what's going on, what has gone on in the last boom, I guess, between Hay Street and Murray Street and, and Adelaide Terrace, mm. it's a real shame, to be honest. The, oh. the planning is yeah. despicable. Yeah. And what it's left really is this big hole of identity and culture yep. all the way through to Harrison Island. Yep. And it's great to hear that there'll be something that people can actually congregate around that yeah. isn't just the Claysbrook Cove. Yeah, that's right. It's long enough gone now that we can be critical of the planning authorities at the time. But I think, you know, personally, I think Claysbrook Cove and that whole East, East Perth precinct, while it's beautiful, it was underdone. Mm. You know, the, the two and three and maybe four-storey height limits around there just meant that you don't have the population density to ensure the commercial viability of the operations that are going on down there. And so all those people that moved in there have only ever had a... 400 square meter IGA store and a rotating mix of small cafes and things who that, keep going broke that regularly go broke because yeah. there's just there's not enough density there and back in the 80s when they master planned that I think they thought that that was going to be enough density but it just it's just not enough you don't have enough people there to make those businesses viable talking about being ballsy mm. you've also been spending a couple of years working up a plan in Mosman Park yep Bain it's hard work existence. working with the NIMBYs <laughs> yeah it sure is. What are you doing there? 2018, we acquired what's generally known as the Mosman Heights Shopping Centre. So it's a little over 5,000 metres of land. It's got a 1,200 square metre IGA store, a fish and chip shop, a pharmacy, BWS bottle store. Pretty run down. Bakery. Pretty run down. Not it's really in keeping with Mosman Park, is it? No, no. And built in the 70s, the roof leaks. It's really poorly designed. It's a 1970s style shopping centre. It's all about cars. It's all about parking and walking in to grab your milk and getting back in your car and driving away. It's not what a neighbourhood centre should be these days. You can't ride your bike there because you've got to cross three crossovers and through the car park to get to a metre-wide veranda that runs around the shopping centre where there's nowhere to park your bike. It's legacy. It's it's really bad yep. and it's done yep. its day and it needs to be redeveloped. We've been working on a plan since we bought it in 2018 that's been very extensive. We um, Challenging, is that the right word? Challenging is probably an understatement. Why? It's been a long planning process. You know, we engaged early, which we always like to do before we even bought the site, sat with the mayor and we sat with um, the head of planning at the local authority and we said, look, this is roughly what we'd like to do. Showed them some early sketches. We'd like to knock it over. We'd like to build a great neighbourhood centre here. We'd like to build five or six levels of apartments on top to make it viable. And we got sent down the path of being told to prepare a local development plan because that was what the town planning scheme at the local authority suggested we should do. And Bit overkill for that space, yeah. isn't it? Oh, look, you know, it's orderly and proper planning and we were happy to do that. And we went off and did it. And along the way, we briefed councillors and we engaged with the local community and we had community reference groups. Back in 2019, we uh, had these laneway events where we parked up 10 or so food trucks in the laneway and we had music and then we had a bar and we had 3,500 people come down for over four Sunday evenings and we had a stand there and I stood there myself with our couple of our community engagement consultants and 
and we spoke to the local community and we showed them images and said this is you know what what do you think's missing from Mosman Park what would you love to see what do you like what don't you like how did it go Oh, it went really well. We had three and a half thousand people come through. Yeah. You know, yep. a local authority gave us an award for the best community event of 2019 and handed it to us at the Australia Day ceremony the following year. It's 2021 now. Yeah, so nearly tw- getting to 2022. Why haven't we got a well, haven't you got build a, well, going on? Approval because, as is often the case in Perth, well, nationally, it's probably, harder in Sydney. Apparently, it's harder in Sydney. Yeah, you know, particularly in the western suburbs, it's difficult here in Perth. There's a group of people who live in the area who think that what we're proposing is too big. So you try and rationalise with them and you try and understand why they think it's too big and you point to, well, if something's too big, what are the impacts on you as a neighbour, as a nearby resident? And it's potentially shadowing, it's overlooking, it's traffic, it's all those sorts of things. It's how you're going to deal with your waste management. You know, we've spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars designing this through to the point that we're at now on consultants on traffic engineers on acoustic engineers on yeah. waste management and consultants on all that stuff we went and engaged an architecture firm from melbourne who we've worked with here on the girls school and other projects who are the best retail mixed use residential development architects in the country the principal of that firm grew up in mosman park studied at uwa so it's not like we just wheeled in a random firm from melbourne who doesn't get it yeah. who doesn't get it but these guys came in and they've you know they've come up with this amazing scheme that that doesn't do any of those things. It doesn't overshadow, it doesn't overlook. There's a negligible increase in traffic like between 4 and 10%. So we can confidently say there won't be a noticeable impact on you. Isn't Yet, this what the state development... Thing? Oh, this, this we were doing all of this well before we engaged with the state development assessment unit. You know, this was stuff we were doing for our LDP last year. Where we ended up was with literally a handful of people who were opposed to what we were doing and driven by a person who lives directly across the road who again isn't impacted by overshadowing or overlooking or anything like that but who then went and was honestly very very strategic and very clever about it went and started an action group and last year just ran a misinformation campaign Mm. and spread the word in the local community which majority of it was lies it was you know things like oh they're building 100 apartments and they're only going to provide 30 car bays and you drop a note like that in somebody's letterbox it's fact. and It's fact. Yeah. Or you put it on the local Facebook page and it becomes fact. Mm. And where they're saying, well, here's our website with all of these traffic reports and all these plans and we can show you that none of that is true, but people will elect to listen to what their next door neighbour said rather than the facts. And That's what the state unit's for though, right? Yeah, look. and, and To cut what, through all of that. What's been very refreshing has been dealing with a far more professional approval body who are interested in everybody's best interests but don't get involved in the you know the, some of the pettiness of the local politics and when people say oh i don't want it because i think it's too big unless you can demonstrate how it's going to impact your life and why you're adversely impacted then just yeah. saying i think it's too big well that that's subjective this and that's opinion. your opinion yeah do you think that this is where the planning space is going to keep pushing into i've found it's a really interesting space when you look at something like childcare or fuel mm. or anything like that right now it's funny how nearly every single application is now suddenly worth at least two million dollars so that it qualifies for a joint development assessment yeah, panel rather yeah, than yeah. going to the councils is is it really a case where the system's broken and the only way that we can push forward with planning is to take it to these independent bodies that aren't political look you'd like to think it's not the only way but it, it you know there's so much politics at a local at local level that of course 
everybody has a right to voice an opinion and everybody has a right to protect their own interests. You know, we no, we've never tried to deny anybody that. In fact, all of our messaging in the Mosman Park instance has been, please just inform yourself. We're not saying we want you to support it. We just want you to get informed before you make a decision. Don't make a decision and don't provide feedback based on hearsay and, mm. and lies. Just go and get the facts. All the information's on a state government website. Now, 700 pages of development application is all there. Go read it, then make a decision. So, you know, we live in a democratic society and everybody needs the right to voice an opinion and have some sort of representation. But at some point, you can't make decisions that are of significance for an entire community based on what one or two vocal people think. Mm. And yep. that's the problem. It's, it happens too it's often. It's the vocal minority days. issue, right? It's yeah. just that, and it's something, you know, we, we cha- we're challenged by on all projects. It's getting the people, you know, everyone will stop you on the street and say, oh, mate, that project's fantastic. Like, yeah, it's love it. Can't wait. When's for it, it coming happen. up? Yeah. And you go well. It's not going to unless you actually do something about it. And it's not just property developments. Everything. How often have you heard about a great yeah, something public that didn't infrastructure happen? project? Yeah. Yeah, because uh, a bunch of people mobilised, got vocal, and rattled the most cages, and so it falls over because it's easier to do nothing. It, yeah. Exactly. It's easier for an you know for elected official to say. Nah, it's, it's you know it's too controversial. Where it's just safer to to not not let it happen. Let me uh, pull it back quite a while again to when you were first starting off yep. in, especially in ADC, coming out of managing a successful high end building company yep. to now being a developer. It's obviously a big change, and it's a change that I think a lot of people listening will one day look be looking to do, whether they're in their own career and if that career especially includes a certain trade or being a builder themselves. Moving into being a developer is, is next level, including when you start to be able to generate investment behind you. Mm. How do you find getting those first five or 10 investors behind you and how do you manage those people today in terms of their expectations and, mm. and not only financially, but the legacy they want to hold? Are they supportive of the really, what I say again, ballsy things that you're looking mm. to achieve in Perth? Well, there's a whole lot of stuff to unpack there. Getting the first five, that's the hardest. Mm. Getting the first project and getting that investment behind you for the first couple of projects is, yeah, that's definitely the hardest because you're unproven and you might have done a bunch of things previously in your own right or with other somebody else. But when you go, this is a new business and we're going to go and raise money, that, that's, always, that's always challenging. What was that project, if I can ask? What was the first uh, thing that you... Yeah. first thing we raised money for was from external investors was I think our hotel in West Perth. We, no one had really built many hotels in the 10 years prior. Again, if, you know, <laughs> out of the box. But the right people went, well, therein lies the opportunity. Mm. You know, Perth, back in 2014 when we bought that site, Perth's hotel stock was tired. There was no new rooms, you know. There was no space. We were in a boom. We were in a in a hotel. We were in a boom. People were paying a thousand dollars a night to stay at the Palmelia, which hadn't had a coat of paint for twenty five years. Yeah. There was a lot of hotel operators looking for an opportunity to get into Perth, but there weren't a lot of opportunities being presented by developers. Typically, for the you know for those people that don't know, the big hotel brands don't own real estate. They're owned by developers, by investors. They don't even rent it. Typically, the majority of hotels around the world operate under what they call hotel management agreement. And as the owner of the hotel, you build the hotel, you put all the furniture in it, you put the forks, the knives, the cutlery and everything else in accordance with your hotel operator's brand requirements. And then they come in and manage it. They put a few staff in there, but essentially as the owner of the hotel, you employ those people and they operate the hotel and they collect the income and they pay the bills. But they do that on your behalf and they take a fee, which is a percentage of 
the income and then a typically a bonus for a percentage of the profit and then whatever's left at the end of the day is your return you as the, the owner of the property. Yep. So you're not only taking property risk, but you're taking business risk. Mm. When we did that deal, there were enough operators around that we were able to negotiate a lease. And given that we'd never done a hotel before and we didn't know much about this HMA thing, we went, well, if we can get a lease and we can guarantee the income. Then we, we know what it's worth. We can get a guaranteed level of income. We know it's worth. We can get bank finance. We can keep now we our just investors happy. build the thing. Yep. Yeah, that's right. And so that's that's what we did. And so... We were able to get a hotel operator, Singapore, who's come in and, and they leased the property off us and, and pay us rent. So yep. it was a little bit different and the market's moved again now and there's very few hotel operators, there's literally one or two in the country who will who will enter into a lease agreement. Everything is hotel management agreements. Yeah, even the big guys, the Hiltons. And oh, absolutely. All those. They don't own real estate. Yeah. Like, the Hiltons, the Intercontinental Hotel Group, Marriott, the four big hotel operators in the world don't own real estate or they own very little rep most of them would represent 5% of their portfolio at most. How do you keep the money happy these days when you're doing some stuff that could take years and has some of that time frame risk? Well, it's it's one of the other reasons why we do stuff that's a little bit different because a lot of our investors, you know, they're whilst they're very passive and they're partnering with us, they like the fact that there's a legacy, they're proud of what's being built. And, you know, we've got a track record now and we've had challenges along the way. We haven't anything that's blow up, but we've had challenges and I think we've demonstrated that we know how to deal with those challenges. And first and foremost, our priority always is our investors' money. It's never about anything else. The well, it's the lifeblood, really. The priority is, you know, we are custodians of other people's money. Mm. And there's other people out there that, that forget that from time to time. But for us, it's always about making sure we get the best return we can for our investors. Going forward, let's say, you know, your girls' school gets up, mm. the development, mm. the whole precinct there. Yep. You're the mayor of East Perth. You've got Muslim Park all sorted out. Yeah. What's the goal in the next five to 10 years? Where do you take ADC? How do you know when you've you, you've sort of stamped your legacy, if that makes sense, where you've, you've reached your goals? Uh, I think we're a long way off reaching our goals, yet we remain passionate about doing great infill projects. It is becoming a more crowded space as well we are seeing some other great some other great developers evolve and step up to the plate and there's some really good projects being done around perth you know and i the thing i love seeing is the fact that there's actually some decent quality architecture happening now you know you were talking about adelaide terrace before it's just bland but now we're starting to see some i think society (laughs) is demanding it now as well yeah that's right yeah exactly buyers are more sophisticated and you're seeing, you know, architects like David Hillam and the team at MJA and that they're getting really, a name for themselves, really yeah. stepping up to the plate and yeah. really designing great buildings and they're getting delivered. Because the challenge, well, I'm not an architect, so I can't say this, but I will. But it's easy to design a great looking building. It's The challenge is designing a great looking building that's feasible to build. And functional. And functional, yeah. yeah. But I made the mistake myself in the early days and everybody does. You let an architect run free and they design you this amazing building. And then it comes time to build it. Doesn't and, stack and up. And it's 30% over budget and the yeah. project doesn't stack up. And that's the hard thing when you <coughs> lead with design is when you do that, obviously well, you can design something is beautiful and, and creates a legacy mm. and everyone believes in. But if you can't get enough square meterage out, and this is where you can go wrong the other way, which mm. is stacking square meterage at the expense of design. Yep. If you don't get that balance of design versus mass, for mm. example, especially if you're capped on height, it can be really hard to be able to pull those together, especially these days when there is so much more of that perspective built into the equation with design criteria that's sitting there in our planning schemes these Mm. days, which govern really as a forefront now how we design. We don't design for mass anymore. We we definitely are designing for the things like natural light and usability and amenity and those things. Yeah, 100%. You know, design WA is great. You know, it's it's really meant that 
developers have to step up and architects have to step up and you have to build livable buildings not mm. not just blocks you know? probably makes everything a bit more expensive at the end of the day though because oh, it look, has to be absolutely things get better they always get more expensive yeah it's not very often a better thing's cheaper but we're seeing some some really good buildings being built in Perth now. So I suppose going back to your question, we five years is not very long in this game either. Well, it's one project for it's, a lot of the things that you're doing. Yeah. yeah. Mosman Park, if we're fortunate enough to get approval this side of Christmas and get to site middle of next year, it's two year build program. So it's three years away. Yeah. You know, it's still three years away. So how does that work with your psyche personally? Because you have you have a lot of listeners who struggle with the idea of a project taking 18 mm. months mm. let alone two years let alone five years mm. when you're creating the things that you're creating with the time risk that is mm. sometimes involved can it be draining emotionally to get two or three years in and still not have the ground broken oh absolutely it's, it gets frustrating and so you've got to be very realistic when you're setting those programs and you know, with your investors as well and with a hundred percent with your investors you know you've got to be realistic from the outset feel like you haven't you can get four months down the track and i haven't achieved anything well you've got you know you've you've got to make a decision around how hard you're going to push the envelope as well you know if you go and design something that's fully compliant and lob it in it'll probably be pretty boring and uninspiring and won't and won't and, sell and, and won't, won't sell and probably won't be viable mm. but you might get an approval in six months if you're going to push the envelope and everybody does it and say, well, we want to build something bigger, then you've got to deliver something that's better. better. Everybody's yeah. looking for the offset, yeah. right? Yeah. But then you've got a much bigger case to build for yourself. Yeah. And that's more community engagement. It's more engagement with local authorities and planning approvals and things like that. It's that balancing act. You know, we've had things go through swiftly. We're doing apartment project down at Leighton that went through the whole planning process in four or five months. But it had planning controls in place that meant it was approvable there and then. Let's talk about the market quickly, yep. if we can. Obviously, you're biased, I'm biased. We're yep. both biased towards believing that things are always going to go great or yep. for a long time, we're safe. But yep. fundamentally, how do you feel about the market now? We're balancing both the demand side, mm. but also the cost of supplying what we supply, mm. especially with mm. where the industry is at, mm. compared to maybe a couple of years ago where things were very steady and nothing really happening at all. Which market would you prefer to be in right now? We were talking about this in the office this morning about... How wonderful it would be if we lived in a place where when you had strong demand for product, you also had reasonable construction costs. Yeah, you had reasonable just, supply. Just never had the same two <laughs> no, things happen. Never no. had those two things happen at the same time. And unfortunately, we're in a boom or bust state. And I'm not an economist, but I suppose my observations are because we're a mining state, we always have this cycle where mining cranks up, lots of money flows into the economy. That money then wants to get spent on property. But at the same time, that booming mining industry is sucking all of the resources out. That, that normally would build the property. That would normally build those projects. And that's exactly where we are right now. Coupled with the additional pressure of having closed borders and not being able to get any labour in. Yep. And the single biggest challenge we face at the moment, selling stuff's easy at the moment, designing stuff's easy, getting approvals is as challenged as it always is. But getting stuff built is going to be a real issue for the next two to three years. The cost of labour is going through the roof. The constant feedback we're getting from builders is costs are going up at probably 10% every six months at the moment. And that there's only, that's only viable for a certain period of time. Anyone that has sold apartments in a project at the moment and is trying to lock away a build cost is looking at a price that's up 10% on what it was six months ago. Mm. And probably 20% on where they did 20, their feasibility. 20% on where they did their feasibility and all of a sudden project's not viable. And that's what people sitting on the fringe and NIMBYs don't get. You know, they don't they care. Think, why, don't, why don't you just take two levels off? Yeah, because it doesn't work. Make it smaller. Why don't you just do this? Why don't you do that? Because it doesn't work. Take one level off, think, there's people, no profit. Profit. Take correct. two levels off, I'm losing money. You're losing money. 
people think that you do a $10 million apartment project and you make $10 million profit. It does not work that way. No. <laughs> Imagine so, if it did. Oh, mate, it would be fantastic. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. There's going to be a serious amount of pressure. And until our borders are opened, and it's just so incredibly frustrating, and I know everybody's got a different view on COVID and borders and everything else, but... I still can't fathom why we can't have a controlled way of letting people in and making them quarantine for work and let them in for work. And that's the problem. The big difference here, we've got two pressures right now that are augmenting our balance of our market. For me, the first one on the demand side, which is actually keeping demand steady and not exploding, is the fact that our weekly immigration numbers have been capped from uncapped to 1,000 to 500 to 250 people a week. Now, we have... 900 transactions a week normally Mm. so when you take 750 people a week out of the market Mm. and possibly more if the borders were totally open Mm. that's nearly double the pressure that's not currently happening on the market so from a demand side imagine when the borders do open it will be manic in terms of the Mm. prices you'll see Mm. east coast stuff happen Mm. all else being equal and on the supply side as you said before the big difference about this market right now in terms of the build costs that we've never seen before is that when this pressure comes in generally like the last boom the government opens up the 457 visas mm. and that is what floods in all the Filipino brickies and the British brickies mm. and the yep. plasterers. They all come in and that keeps the cost of supply down and yep. manageable. Yep. This is what's augmenting the market and what I'm starting to hear is there are a number of developers that are actually simply putting their developments on ice for yeah. the foreseeable yeah, future. That's definitely going to happen. Because they know they've got a good project. Yep. They know <laughs> they have the demand for it mm. but they're not willing to spend the extra million dollars to get the project going right now. Yeah. I'd rather just sit on it and let right. the small commercial rent they're getting on that block right now that's holding costs for it just be what it is yeah. until the risk goes down. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And couple that with the fact that there's a massive rental property shortage and no one's building rental apartments. Yeah. What do you do? Exactly it's right. Just gonna, it's just going to get worse and worse. Oh, and you know the possibility of negative cash rate coming through soon. Yeah. Yep. You know the lead time on you know some someone was telling me the other day that some of the project builders. Uh, are that busy that they're pouring a slab, dropping bricks on the pad and saying to the client, oh, we'll be back with brickies in nine months. Yeah. (laughs) And what do you do if you're in that instance where you're a first home buyer or... Paying your mortgage. Paying your mortgage and you're renting and all of a sudden your house that should have taken 24 weeks to build is going to take a year and a half or two Mm. years. Mm. It's a lot of risk. Those pressures are massive. Yeah, and that's the thing. What you're explaining is that the same pressures that people are feeling at that level in a house and land package space... You, all the way up. you feel it all the way at the development yeah. space and where you're at as well. Yeah, until there's some sensibility about a strategy for living with COVID, and I know that's not what we're here to talk about, but until there's some sensibility about that and we actually start letting people in, we missed a massive opportunity here as a country mm. when a year ago everyone was looking at Australia and going, wow, when all this stuff's over, I'm going there because it's beautiful and there's lots of space and everything else, to now we're that country that couldn't get their proverbial together yeah. and get vaccinated. We're the hermit and, kingdom. Yeah, we're the hermit kingdom. And people are going, wow, why would I go there? You know, there was all this talk about all these great industries that were going to start here because all these people from all over the world were going to come here. And now they're all going, why would I go there? I can't even get in there for starters. I can't even get in there. And why would I go there? If that's the way they behave when things get tough, forget about it. You mm. know, that's, that's the risk. We could have a year ago been going, all right, we need engineers, we need bricklayers, we need this, we need that across every industry in the country and picking the best from all over the world and bring them in. Yeah, quarantining them in a facility. Quarantine and- them for two weeks and then they're normal, then they, they're, believe it or not, they're still human beings. Exactly. Yeah. Adam Zorzi of Australian Development Capital, thank you so much for coming in. It's been such an insightful 
chat, it's not we haven't just spoken about the ins and outs of development and what you're up to, but I guess that whole story of yours and the idea of differentiating your strategy for me has been the theme for today and that people at any level of a price point can focus on to make sure that they're de-risking their project going forward. Thank you very much for coming in, mate. Pleasure, Trent. Lovely to chat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!